0: child care happening this is the child care the whole family's together today and i know if you got your kiddos with you that might create a little bit of stress but listen to me we're not stressing your kid makes noise we're happy about it we'd much rather they make noise here than they're going to be making noise somewhere it might as well be with the faith family and so don't sweat it don't get stressed don't be worried about it and in fact i would love it if our kids would join me down front for a brief moment. I got something for you. And so, boys and girls, if you would come all this way, all the way down here, I want us to hang out together for just a minute. It's okay. Come on, come on, come on. Even if you're a big kid, I don't know. (laughs) Come on, come up, have a seat. Good job, good job, What's up? Come on, have a seat, have a seat. I've got things. What's up? Good morning, and Merry Christmas. Come on. Have a seat, grab a seat. What's up, Oliver, what's up? Good morning, good morning. Have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. Good morning. You weren't expecting this, were you? I'm so sorry to spring these surprises. I tried to email you before, but you obviously didn't get it. Come on up and grab a seat. Hey, does everyone like candy canes? I mean, I want to show you some cool stuff about candy canes today. Pretty amazing things. And I want to give you some candy canes if that's all right with you. Okay? First of all, did you know that God built you with candy cane holders on the side of your head? Did you know that? Seriously, check that out. They just rock right there. You can walk along and be like, candy cane time, and then put it right back, and you're good to go. But these things. They teach us about Jesus. Isn't that kind of weird? But let me show you the ways a candy cane can teach us about Jesus. One is, if you turn it upside down, it makes a letter. What letter does it make? It makes a J. And so J, that's the first letter in the name of Jesus. And so right away we can say, hey, this reminds me of Jesus. And who's Jesus? Well, he's the reason we celebrate Christmas. This is the day he was born. That's right, he's God. He's God with us, God who loves us, God who was born for us and died for us. And so right away, first lesson, this is about Jesus who is God with us. Here's another thing. If you turn it this way, it looks like an old tool called a staff. Have you read about or heard about who used to use staffs? Yeah, sheep herders, shepherds. Shepherds would use staffs, so they were a lot bigger than this, right? Really tall sticks that had this little crook in them, and they would use them to guide their sheep. They'd be like, come on, this way, sheep, come get food, come get drink. Nope, lay down, take a nap, and they would use their sticks to do that. And Jesus said this. He said, I am the good shepherd, but he wasn't talking about taking care of sheep, was he? He was talking about taking care of us. He said, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. Did you know you're a sheep? You are. I know my sheep, and they know me. So Jesus is our good shepherd. Not only does it tell us about Jesus, who's our good shepherd, the red in the candy cane, it reminds us that he died on the cross for our sins. And then the white on the candy cane reminds us of the forgiveness that's ours when we make him the Lord of our lives. Man, so many different lessons about Jesus from this one candy cane. One last lesson is this. If you take two candy canes and you put them together... What does that make? It makes a heart. Man, this, these candy canes remind us of God's love for us. Jesus taught us how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then how to love our neighbor as ourselves. All this from just a little candy cane. It's about Jesus. He's our good shepherd. He died for our sins. He forgives us of all of them, and he teaches us how to love God and love each other. And that's the lesson of the candy cane. So I'm so glad you guys are here this morning. Have you had a good Christmas morning so far? That's what I'm talking about. I will believe that. So let me give you some candy canes. And look, if it's okay with mom and dad, whoever you're with, feel free to eat this during church, okay? It's up to the boss people, but it's okay with me if it's okay with them, all right? I love you guys. Merry Christmas. Let me give you these things on your way back to your seat. Here you go. Thanks, a lot. All right, if you did not get a candy cane, you get to feast on the Word, so would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and um, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you will find one in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find Matthew chapter 2 on page 856 in that pew Bible. Uh, And so while you turn there, look, we've got a problem on our hands that we we have to address this morning. And the problem is it's a serious theological problem. It's a serious existential problem. It's the problem of God's forgetfulness. Uh, It sometimes seems as if God has simply forgotten us. When we experience hardship, it's really easy to assume that God is absent. I mean, how else could we explain this hurt and this turmoil that we're going through. I mean, if God were present, then surely we wouldn't experience the pain that we're going through. Uh, and we're not alone in feeling this way. We're not alone in feeling as if God has forgotten us. In fact, there are several places in the Scriptures uh, where people ask this question of God. A few examples. One is in Psalm chapter 13, verse 1. David asked this question. He said, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? That's in the Bible. Psalm forty-four twenty-four. 24. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? Lamentations chapter 5, verse 20. Why do you continually forget us, abandon us for our entire lives? This is the human experience at its most raw, speaking truthfully, honestly, these uh, accusatory words to God. Now, I love that the Bible gives us permission to ask hard questions of God when we're at our most vulnerable. Each of the speakers in these three verses, and others like these, they're speaking from places of intense anguish. But here's the thing, that the askers of these questions always receive answers. They ask, have you forgotten us and God is not silent at that question. So it's important that you know the answer to the question, God, have you forgotten me? You need to know the answer for others who may ask you for your wisdom and advice. You need to know it for yourself for when the hard day comes to your home. When we are at our most vulnerable, we will hear whispers telling us that we've been left to fend for ourselves. But the Christmas story is a powerful confirmation that God does not forget his people. So today we're going to study a very short passage. It's a single moment in the early days of the Holy Family. And this story in Matthew's Gospel uh, is a powerful reminder to us forgetful people that our God does not forget. And so my goal today is for you to be strengthened by God's powerful memory His powerful remembrance of you. And I want to do that by sharing with you two things that God never forgets. Uh, Our story picks up after Jesus was born. Uh, It's a little bit of time has passed since his birth. The wise men have come from the east and they went to Jerusalem. They knocked on King Herod's door and they're looking for the newborn king. When Herod hears there's a newborn king, he was deeply troubled by this. And so he hatches a secret plan and he tells the wise men, go locate the new king child and then come back and tell me where he is so that I also can go and worship him. Wink, wink. Uh, He's got bad things in mind for this baby. Uh, But the wise men saw through the plot. They knew what Herod was up to and and They went and found the Christ child, the holy family, but they did not return to Herod. And that's where our story picks up in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Follow along with me in your Bible. It says, After they were gone, that's after the wise men left the holy family, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. In this very short passage, we find two things that God never forgets and we need to remember these things especially on christmas day what does god never forget the first thing god never forgets is this god never forgets his enemies god never forgets his enemies and this story makes that abundantly clear to us It begins with this holy visitation to Joseph. If we'd been reading uh, Matthew's Gospel from the beginning of chapter one, then we would know that this is actually the second time God has spoken to Joseph in a dream. The first time, back in chapter one, the angel told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. And now, in this second vision, the angel alerts Joseph to danger to come. Uh, Herod the Great is a true danger to everyone under his rule. Who was Herod the Great? He was the Rome-appointed governor over the region of Judea. Uh, Here's the easiest way to put that into context. Think of Herod the Great the same way you think of Charlie Baker. Not in terms of character and murderous scheming and all of that, but just in terms of office. Uh, Charlie Baker, for now, a little bit longer anyways, governor over the commonwealth. Herod, governor over Judea. Uh, just as there's, we have governors and then we have a president, so in Jesus' day there were governors like Herod and then there was one ruler over the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar Tiberius was his name at the time of the birth of Jesus. Jesus. And so, that's who Herod is. He's this Rome-appointed governor. He's in charge of keeping peace in Judea and sending taxes to Rome. As long as he does that, everything's a okay Now, Herod gets a lot of positive publicity for good things he did for his constituents. Uh, He rebuilt and beautified and expanded the temple complex in Jerusalem. Uh, He undertook these major, major building projects around the region of Judea. Uh, If you were to travel there today, you would see the remains, the remnants of all these things that Herod built. The descriptions of the temple in all of its beauty, beauty, all of its adornment is because of Herod's work. Uh, Herod is Jewish by his mother, uh, but he's not a practicing Jew. He's not a believing Jew. Uh, Herod is... Uh, in love with his wealth and in love with his power. And anything that threatened those things uh, were dealt with brutally by Herod. He did not endure threats to his own throne, even from his own family. Uh, History records his brutality against his own flesh and blood. Really gruesome. One historian wrote, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. If you're his pig, at least you got a chance to live. Uh, So he's uh, this horrible, brutal human being. Herod has soldiers, he has swords, he has power, but he doesn't have God, and that puts him at a serious disadvantage. And So Joseph received the warning from God that Herod was up to no good, and I want you to notice the fact that God's plan begins to unfold long before Herod even has a clue that things aren't right. The wise men uh, have taken off, but Herod doesn't know that yet. Herod isn't aware that things aren't going according to his plan, but God knows what's going on, and he intervenes. He steps in for the rescue of the Holy Family even before the threat has fully come to formation. The angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph in this dream before the threat came up, before Herod knew it, before Joseph knew it because God's eyes are on His enemies. Their schemes and planning and actions don't go unnoticed or unseen. God doesn't react against evil. He is proactive against it at every step. Scripture is clear on this point. And this is just like God to have a plan for deliverance before the crisis even arises. He has a plan to rescue the Holy Family Before Herod has already hatched his plot, in this way it is in our lives as well, before we know of our hardship, our difficulty, before we know we need a savior, salvation has already been worked. God has already acted on our behalf. He is the first mover. He's the one that takes action for our salvation, for our rescue, for our deliverance, for our healing. God thwarted Herod's plan before it was even conceived in his twisted little brain. There's this divine subversiveness to the kingdom of God. It undermines all of his enemies. Even when they think they are at the peak of their power, even when God's enemies think they are invincible, God is in complete and total control. It does not matter their wealth, their arsenal, their global footprint. There is no one who is beyond the omnipotence of God. God never forgets his enemies. He's always working against evil in all the ways it manifests itself. Now here's where you might push back and say, well, how can that be when there is so much that is truly evil in this world? Two answers to that question. First of all, God is always restraining evil by his sovereign hand. We have no idea how profound evil would be in our world were it not for the restraining hand of God. This is not me trying to be cliche and say, well, things could always be worse. That's not how we approach suffering or make sense of it or or endure it. So that's not what this is, but I, I want you to see... Even though we don't understand, even though we don't have the the perfect blueprint of how evil, evil could be, we know that God restrains it by His good, sovereign hand, and we cannot imagine the horror of this existence were it not for His common grace to us all to hold evil at bay. Second, God works against evil on His timeline and not ours. And so while it might seem to us from our finite vantage point that evil is winning today, vengeance is the Lord's. He works with eternity in mind, not just one second at a time, but He knows evil's end. Our lives are but a vapor, but God's judgment against His enemies is an eternal judgment. That might seem like a really heavy message for Christmas Sunday morning with all the kids in the room eating candy canes. I hope they've been distracted by their candy canes. I know that's a heavy message, but it's the right message because it is a distinctly Christmas message. Have you ever heard of Mary's song? In Luke chapter 1, after Mary's visited by Gabriel, the angel, and he tells her of God's plan for her and the child she will carry... Well, a little after that, Mary wrote a song of praise to God. And I want you to hear some of the lines from Mary's song. It has lines like these. The mighty one has scattered the proud. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones. He has sent the rich away empty. Mary's song was not a sweet little lullaby. It was a wartime anthem in which God topples His enemies. He never forgets His enemies. They are never off of His leash. They never have free reign. They will face His justice forever. And this is good news for God's people who at many times and in many different ways have suffered great injustice and great violence. God sees God knows. God is active. He does not forget his enemies. He is faithful and true, and evil is always under his omnipotent hand of justice. So God never forgets his enemies. There's one other thing God never forgets. God never forgets his people. Never forgets his people. Never forgets you. Look at verse 15. It's this curious detail. It says, um, Joseph in the Holy Family, they stayed in Egypt until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 15 is notoriously tricky. Uh, on the surface it seems to be saying that the holy family's flight to egypt is the fulfillment of prophecy it just seems to have to do with geographical markers but is that really all there is to it well the quote that matthew uses comes from the book of hosea it's hosea chapter 11 verse 1 and here's what's tricky about hosea 11:1 in its original form when hosea wrote these words this is not a messianic prophecy When Hosea wrote these words, he was referencing Israel's past failures and God's faithfulness to his people. So Hosea 11 begins on a very positive note with this line that Matthew has quoted, that out of Egypt I've called my son. The son there is the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt is a reference to the Exodus. God heard their groaning, and in his grace he sent a deliverer, and he delivered them. From the evil oppression of Pharaoh, he brought them out and to the promised land. Hosea 11 begins with this uh, good memory of God rescuing his people. But then as Hosea 11 continues, it describes Israel's continued rebellion against God. Yes, God brought them out, but then Israel turned against God. Things went south really quick and for a long time, but then the way this uh, story ends, Hosea 11, is it ends again with the promise of God's redemption of his people. He rescued them once, they turned against him, but he's going to rescue them again in this ultimate way. So what are we supposed to do then with Matthew's use of this quote? It isn't messianic because it's about Israel. It's not about the Messiah. And it isn't prophecy because Hosea's quote is past tense. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's not a future tense reference. He's, he's not talking about the Holy Family's escape to Egypt and then eventual return to settle in Nazareth. Well, when Matthew looked at Israel's history in Egypt and the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt, he saw that there couldn't just be a coincidence in these details. So, what he gives us here in Matthew chapter 2 is not the fulfillment of prophecy, but rather the fulfillment of a major Old Testament theme related to God's people, Israel, and the Messiah. In quoting Hosea, Matthew's not saying, here's a prophecy that was fulfilled, but rather he's saying, here's an idea from Israel's past that is completed in the person and life of Jesus. So when he quotes Hosea, Matthew's holding up the nation of Israel as well as the person of Jesus, and he's telling us there's something similar here between the two. In Hosea's prophecy, he tells how God faithfully brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. Likewise, Matthew's saying that just as Israel is God's son who was rescued and delivered by God, Jesus is also God's son who's going to be saved from this evil oppressor. In so many words... Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the new Israel. But more than that, He is God's one and only Son. So Jesus is not just new Israel, He's also the sacrificial Lamb through whom God's people will find their ultimate deliverance. So therefore, He's not just the new Israel, He's also the new Exodus. And this is where your brains go, what?! This is incredible. Matthew uses this one little line from Hosea, and he gives us these magnificent truths that Jesus, is, where, where Israel failed in their covenant with their God, Jesus is the one who will fulfill the law in the uttermost. And whereas Israel experienced this lesser exodus, which was big at the time for sure, Jesus is the new exodus, the ultimate exodus, that delivers us from sin's power and penalty and presence for all eternity. He's the fulfillment of God's promises of redemption to the nation of Israel, promises that were initiated with the exodus and the Passover. Israel forgot their God, but God never forgot His promises to them. They forgot that he was working their redemption. He never forgot about their need to be redeemed. He was always working it. And so with the the incarnation of Christ, this redemption is coming to its full completion. So while God is at work pulling down the Herods of the world, he's also at work raising up his people. He's constantly working both vengeance and salvation, justice and justification The work necessary for your salvation was conceived before creation. It was completed before you were born. And the path by which you would hear the gospel and respond to God's call was put in place before you even knew you needed salvation. Look, there's no point in human history where God has not been working to complete your redemption. He has not forgotten you. And if God remembered you when you were His enemy... If He loved you so much that He gave His Son to die for you, then how can we look at our current situations and assume that we're forgotten or that He's left us or that He's no longer present with us? Look, even when the hard day is hard, even when you're at the end of your strength, you're not forgotten. Your God remembers you. He always has. He always will. Do you remember Mary's song She wrote it right after the angel Gabriel came and visited her, not long after. And in that song, she wrote about the toppling of powers and nations and rulers. But that's not all she wrote about. She also wrote about how God remembered his people. Mary's song contains lines like these My soul magnifies the Lord. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. The mighty one has done great things for me. He has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Because God never forgets his people. Never. What are two things that God never forgets? never forgets his enemies, and he never forgets his people. He is always working against his enemies and always working for the redemption of his people. If we were to go back to Psalm 13, uh, we uh, heard the question asked at the beginning of our time together. David asked this question in Psalm 13, 1, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Does God forget his children? No, he doesn't. Is hardship evidence of God's forgetfulness? Never. The same man who asked that question in Psalm 13 also wrote Psalm 23 where he said, Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We are never forgotten. God is with us. and Isn't that the message of this day? In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we're told that the virgin will have a child. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus told his disciples, Remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In John chapter 14, verse 16, God, or Jesus told his disciples about God the Holy Spirit who remains with you and will be in you. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, our triune God with us forever. How could He ever forget us? So let God's remembrance of you be endurance when you're weak. And let it be joy when you're hurting. And let it be hope when you're struggling. Let it silence the voice of the accuser. Let it be courage in the presence of evil. And if you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe God who himself said in Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your memory. It's a faithfulness to your promises. Not a faithfulness that we hold you accountable to, but this is who you are, the God who remembers, the God who acts, God of compassion and mercy, the God who is bringing evil to an end, the God who is raising the humble and gifting them glory forever. We praise your holy name and we thank you for this gift on this day. Thank you for your memory of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.